electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead of The Exchange, consumers may be furious about higher prices, but their spending was much stronger than expected last month. Strong retail sales, strong earnings, all have the market rallying back towards record highs. We will look at whether these gains are sustainable. And oil's jumping again as well, but the charts may be signaling the recent surge is getting long in the tooth. And a different commodity could take the reins from here. We'll tell you which one. And we'll trade the stocks Wall Street says are going to define the future. And everything from movies to energy to transportation and, of course, to snack food. But we begin with Dom Chu with the numbers for us today. All right, it's a Friday, Kel, and we got a rally on our hands here. We're just a few percent away from record highs for some of these major indexes, indices. The Dow Industrial is up 295 points roughly right now. To give you some kind of context of how we are shaping up here, at the highs of the session, we were up roughly 355 points. So tilting towards the more positive side of things, three-quarters of 1% upside for the Dow Industrials. The S&P 4466, the last trade there, up about two-thirds of 1%. The Nasdaq Composite, half percent gains, a lagger today, up about 63 points, 14,887, the last level there. One of the things that we're watching is an interesting trade play out over the course of the last week, sector-wise in the marketplace. If you look at the best-performing sector in the S&P this week, it's the real estate side of things. It's one of the smaller sectors in the S&P. Doesn't get a lot of attention, but with so much focus on inflation these days, there's a tilt in many investors' eyes towards more real assets. And, of course, fixed assets like real estate become part of that discussion as well. On the week, it's up 4%. Materials as well, speaking of assets, hard assets, real assets, that sort of thing, up about three quarters of one, three and three quarters of 1% for the material side of things, the two best-performing sectors. And comm services, many cable companies, media companies like AT&T, Disney, some of those social media stocks still lagging the worst performing sector on the week. And then Goldman Sachs, probably your stock of the day, single-handedly responsible for roughly, at this point, call it 60-some points in the Dow's gain. So roughly a fifth of the entire advance so far today is just Goldman Sachs, the investment banking giant coming out with blockbuster results. One of the best quarters, if not the best quarter ever for Goldman Sachs. And, Kel, if you look at it, investment banking revenues, nearly 90% in gains over the same time last year. So Goldman Sachs up big. Not at record highs just yet, but still one of the biggest stocks on the move today. I'll send things back over to you. And we're going to have more on the deal boom in just a moment, Dom. Thank you. Now, the markets are nearing all-time highs, but my next guest says inflation will be the number one market driver through year-end. He worries a wage price spiral may already be in the early stages of developing and has several names he thinks can do well amid these kinds of pressures. Joining me now is David Harden. He's the CEO and chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. David, welcome. And today really highlights things, doesn't it? The fact that we have the market off to the races, strong retail sales numbers, but the consumer sentiment report, second worst reading in a decade, the inflation's numbers not heading in the right direction. And you have economists warning this is almost sending recessionary signals. 
It is. And, and we've, we, we've seen this a little bit. We've been watching it, right? The Fed's obviously watching it. And so this is a concerning. I think that uh, if you look at it long term, it probably settles down, but more or higher than what the Fed wants at 2%. We're looking long term c- coming in at maybe 3%. So this is going to be uh, a little bit more to deal with than what the Fed is talking about right now. So you have picks here, Costco, Exxon, Adobe, you're selling Southwest. Are these basically stocks that you think will do well in an environment that is not as bad as you fear it could get? Uh, Because you think that, you know, while there are signs that things are upwards, we're not really, you know, there's no wage price spiral yet. Is that the idea? That's right. And so if you look at, you you know, definitely everybody is worried about these global supply chains, right? And all the ships off of California, et cetera. But Costco is one of the most well-managed inventories. Before anybody was thinking about inventories, before anybody was thinking about supply supply chain, Costco was. So very, very positive on Costco. We've been positive here for a while. If you're worried about supply chain, I think this is the place to go. Retail sales, as you noted, were up. I think that this is a, uh, if anybody's going to take advantage of this and do better, Costco would be the one. Where if you look at tech, some techs have hardware problems. We've heard about Apple this week. We've heard about some disappointing going on in Vietnam, et cetera, these supply chains. We'll turn to something like an Adobe. Adobe, really, zero supply chains issues, robust revenue and earnings growth, growth margins there, top of their industry for the past three years, higher in now than they were pre-pandemic, great company, and into it, another good company there. So look for techs that do not have supply chain. Look for those in supply chain that are better than everybody else. So are you worried, you know, what do you think about the market overall here? Would you, I think I saw the word bubble uh, show up maybe at least once in your thoughts. Um, Is that what you think is taking place? Well, there's no doubt in our mind that we're in a bubble currently, right? But the thing is, is what would cause the bubble to stop? What would cause this to not catch up with itself? And there's really two things right now that are the only two things that really stop this right now. And that's a rate scare where the 10-year gets above, say, 1.7, 1.75. I think you need to get defensive in that type of situation more than you are today. And if the Fed policies, listen, in January when people's terms end, we might even have a more dovish Fed than we have today. So if the Fed's dovish policies begin to be viewed as more harmful than helpful, then I think that really takes the bubble to a a burst level. So value right now over growth, super choppy trading, and sustained higher inflation longer. All right. David, thanks for joining me with all of those thoughts today. It's good to see you. Welcome. David Harden with Summit Global Investments. Let's turn to commodities now, where WTI crude is up 13% in the past month and 70% so far this year. Those concerns he was just talking about, supply shortages, increased demand, that's kept the momentum in crude going. But is this rally getting long in the tooth? Is it time to start looking elsewhere in the commodity complex for the next breakout? Joining me now is Paul Siana. He is the chief uh, FIFIC, as we call it, a fixed income currency and commodities technical strategist at Bank of America. Great to have you here. So what are you worried about on the crude front? Thanks for having me, Kelly. It's good to be here. I must tell you, I usually enjoy a cup of coffee with your show, but today I'm enjoying a lot of copper, a lot of oil, and a lot of commodities. And, you know, specifically on the oil front, uh, what we're seeing there is big picture secular uptrend, but we're seeing momentum wane. And what I mean by that is you know, the last three higher highs this year in, in, in oil prices have been reached with lower levels of momentum. So we commonly look at an indicator called the Relative Strength Index, or RSI, 
that's made three lower highs while prices have made higher highs. For us technicians, that's a concerning sign that maybe there's uh, time for oil to take a breather or even correct lower uh, at the end of the year. Yeah, and actually 81 was kind of your target there, and we talked about how we broke above that level this week. So you're saying you think a commodity rotation is underway in favor of reducing oil longs and exchanging them for copper longs. Now, I've heard the case for copper in the long run, you know, growth of EVs, electrification, and that kind of thing, but it seems to me like you sure. might be talking about something more short-term. Is there any, are there any supply problems there? I'm not sure if there's supply problems per se, but what I do see is a period of time where copper prices did nothing, right? They corrected from the last uh, highs back at about 488, and they went all the way down to about four bucks. So you have a, a, a period where supply in a way was digested by lower prices, and now maybe demand is picking up, demanding higher prices for copper because maybe they slowed down on producing. That would be a great sign, obviously. Um, and again, like I said, as people are starting to think about the energy transition, all that, they're looking at all of these key inputs to producing that sort of next uh, next demand wave that may be coming. Um, so I also think when, when you say to people that you think the oil rally is getting long in the tooth, are you getting any pushback? Because it is such a, a loved thesis right now. I think a lot of people are looking for alpha, let's call it, there into year end. Sure. Uh, a lot of the clients that know my work and research are aware that earlier this year in the second quarter, we called for new all-time highs in oil prices over the long term. So we have multi-year outlook on oil prices, on copper prices, and many commodities that are are probably more bullish in the street. So the way that I see it, Kelly, is uh, a lot of theses are actually catching up to what the technicals had identified in the first half of the year. Um, So could oil prices persist after a dip? Absolutely. I think for managing a portfolio or of commodities or thinking about, you know, uh, how to better position for the next uh, couple of months, reducing some of the uh, oil long exposure uh, looks beneficial because of the way the momentum setups have, have uh, pre- uh, presented themselves hmm. in favor for the base metal, specifically copper. Interesting. And you're saying you could see copper, you know, if, if we get to the 488-500 range, then it would be a long-term breakout uh, that could potentially head to the 560s, 630s, maybe even $730 range. So then a final thought here, where do right. you see oil ranging? Um, do you see it falling quite substantially? Or how would you sort of explain that the, yeah. the setup now? I think the best way to, to compare the, the setup now on oil prices is to look at what happened in 2018. With the distinct point that now we're in a secular uptrend in oil, and in 2018, we were in a secular downtrend. So in 2018, after this momentum divergence between prices and our side, oil prices actually declined about 40%. I don't think we're going to see a 40% correction. Maybe something like 15% that gets down to the 50-week moving average and the trend line that's been guiding it higher since the 2020 lows. So kind of a, a higher low. If I, <laughs> I'm already Absolutely. I'm outside of my low. field of expertise. Uh, Paul, thank you so much <laughs> for joining us to break this down. It's really important stuff, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Paul Sienna is with Bank of America. Still ahead, Striketober continues. Up next, we will break down the economic factors leading to labor fights from healthcare to Hollywood with nearly 100,000 American workers either striking or preparing to walk out. Plus, today is tax day for many high-income earners who filed an extension and will be looking to claim a new tax residency in some cases. We'll tell you how far people are willing to go to dodge Uncle Sam. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Recent data shows COVID created the perfect storm that could permanently alter the labor landscape, even once the pandemic ends. Kate Rogers is here with that story. Kate? Hey, Kelly, the report from MC is called The Demographic Drought and a coming worker sandemic, it says, or people shortages on the way. Now, there are several factors here set to worsen the crisis, according to the report. First up, baby boomer retirements and extra one million boomers are projected to have been pushed into early retirement during COVID. But the future workforce will be smaller due to falling birth rates, which saw the biggest drop in nearly 50 years in 2020. Next up, replacing those boomers. There aren't enough millennials or Gen X workers who are ready to fill boomer shoes for varying reasons. The report also points to the massive amount of cash that some millennials stand to inherit from their parents, $68 trillion by 2030, which will give them more financial freedom to make decisions about the kind of work that they do and don't want to do. 2.4 million women left the workforce over the 2020-2021 year, but prime-age working men have also been exiting the workforce for decades, the data show, millions alone due to the opioid epidemic in recent years. Others are living with their parents in higher numbers and tend to prefer part-time work. Companies need to be thinking about wages, of course, but also about flexibility and recruitment in new ways in order to keep workers on board. What we have to do is change our messaging versus how much a job pays versus how valuable the job is, what you're doing that's meaningful. I feel that maybe there's an opportunity to just tell people more about the value of the work that they're doing versus just saying, I can give you another dollar more than this job over there. Now, this is already starting to crop up on earnings calls, particularly in the service sector this quarter. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much, Kate Rogers. So is the lost worker phenomenon that we're seeing giving employees more power than ever? We've already seen strikes across a wide variety of industries lately, from carpenters in Seattle to bus drivers in Maryland to coal miners in Alabama. In terms of individual companies, employees are striking a deer right now, Kellogg and Nabisco. While Amazon and Starbucks face unionization efforts, is there a way to solve these issues to get the labor market back into balance? Joining me now to discuss are Mark Pierce, the former chair of the National Labor Relations Board, and Bill Rogers, director with the St. Louis Fed and former chief economist at the Labor Department. Welcome to you both. Mark, I'll begin with you. Is this just the beginning of a wave of additional strikes and similar measures we could see? I think so. I think that what what we have here is a situation where the pandemic has made clear that workers are vulnerable and and are concerned about their health and safety. Uh, And they have also seen record profits in businesses that have not 
reach the pockets of the workers. Workers see that there is a shortage of labor and they have options now. And they're utilizing these opportunities to get better protections and get more money in their pockets to compete and to be on the level that they should have been given the profits that are being made in this country. You know, Bill, it's interesting that we've seen wages rise. Uh, even if you go back to before the pandemic, a strong economy, wages were starting to rise among you know lowest earners. But this is just a totally different story now in terms of the dynamic. There's specific industries that are really hard hit. There's kinds of work that is uh, especially difficult to fill right now. So how quickly before those workers come back to the labor force? Um, are they in other kinds of roles? And what does the raft of strikes tell you? Well, you asked me several questions. Let me go with that, the raft of strikes. I mean, I think the raft of strikes tells me um, that this is just a, the what the straw that broke the camel's back, that starting in the 1980s, a little history here, but starting in the 1980s, there was a concerted effort to basically weaken unions, weaken organized labor. Uh, then we also moved into our accelerations in terms of globalization and also technologies into the workplace. You know, prior to the pandemic, people were, the, the buzz was, you know, is, is a robot or AI going to take your job? And so, and, and then combined with uh, policy responses that were not as strong in terms of supporting workers or supporting uh, uh, their uh, continued growth in, the, in their share of workers' compensation, their share of uh, uh, labor share, it's called. And, and so this is really the rooster, the, the, the chickens have home, come home to roost, so to speak, here. And that, uh, as uh, my colleague here just spoke, I mean, we the, the tight, economy, tight labor market has uh, put, shifted the nexus of power from employers uh, to workers. Mark, how much further does this go? You know, we've seen Amazon paying now, I think, $22 an hour. Um, is it going to be just about wages because prices are so high? Is it about you know, other kinds of benefits? Um, what, what would you expect as this continues to play out? Well, it's not just wages, it's safety. It's, it's quality of life. Workers have an opportunity, given the pandemic and during periods where they have risked their lives, to really evaluate whether or not this is what they want to do. This is a period where they're talking about the great resignation. Workers are, are leaving their jobs in droves and going to different areas where they are less vulnerable. Uh, will, this, will this continue? As long as there is a desire to make a profit there is going to be a need for a viable workforce. Just like in the 30s, when they had to ramp up production to combat the depression, uh, businesses had to face the fact that there has to be a partnership with labor. And that this is an indication that that's the direction that things have to go. Bill, how does the Fed address this? You know, is fiscal, is their stimulus, is uh, QE, is balance sheet, is that the way that you can try to address a shortage of labor, a supply side crisis? Yeah, uh, I, I should have said at the beginning, I have to say all my opinions that I express here are mine alone and not uh, Fed policy, my bank policy or the system. And so uh, 
I will leave this question to uh, my president, Bank President Jim Bullard, and, uh, and other colleagues on the uh, you know the FOMC. But I but I will say to you that uh, uh, our institute, the Institute for Economic Equity, which I'm now four months into uh, being the director, uh, we we are focused on these long-term trends, and so that's why I shared with you. Uh, my perspective on why we're seeing the uh, seeing this uh, this uptick in 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 strike activity. You know, work, management workers don't want to that's don't want to strike. It's the last option, and and uh, the patterns that we've been seeing that we're documenting uh, at the, at our institute really show that uh, uh, as was as was said, you know, the American worker and their families. Uh, have had major challenges. I mean, prior to the pandemic, that was supposedly the best economy since World War II. We still were finding in some of our Federal Reserve data that over a third, third, third of, uh, of um, American households, that if they had an unexpected bill of $400, they wouldn't be able to pay it. Right. Uh, and then the pandemic further exacerbated this this, this, the, the challenges that these families are facing. And, and as said, I mean, basically, the, the good job is a job where you're seeing, you feel like you're compensated fairly, you're making an impact, and you also feel like you're being respected. And, and uh, the data and the experiences that are being shared are, are continue to show that we've got a long ways to go. And this will continue, in my view, as long as we continue to have this strong economy, as long as we have uh, these labor shortages or these skill shortages to where the nexus of power uh, stays in the hands of, of workers. Well, and as you both kind of alluded to, maybe closer to the beginning still than the end of this. Mark Pierce and Bill Rogers, thank you so much for analyzing the situation. We appreciate it. Still ahead, the $6 trillion market that dealmakers are poised to profit from thanks to pent-up demand from pre-pandemic fundraising. We'll explain the deal-making surge. Plus, this stock is on pace for its worst day since 2019 after warning of a worrying trend in higher education. We'll tell you what's behind this move right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Markets are just off session highs, which was a gain of 355 points on the Dow. We're up 290 at the moment. And the Dow is the outperformer today. It's up eight-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq lagging with a third of a percent gain. Here are some of the movers this hour. Generac is higher after Truist initiated the stock with a buy-in of $500 price target. They think revenue will grow 50%, giving the growing number of grid outages. Generac is up nearly 5% today. Its shares have doubled since January and are less than 3% from their all-time high. They're trading around 455. Pearson was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. It's lower after reporting a 7% drop in higher education sales, though maintaining its full-year guidance. The company says enrollment at community colleges was hit by the Delta variant. This has the stock on pace for its worst day since 2019, and it is now 30% off its recent highs. It's down almost 15% today. Now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The Justice Department will ask the U.S. Supreme Court to block enforcement of the Texas abortion ban while court cases challenging its constitutionality continue. The move comes after an appeals court left in place the law known as Senate Bill 8. Last month, the Supreme Court allowed the law to take effect, but did not rule on whether it's constitutional. 
The U.S. Capitol Police officer has been indicted for obstruction of justice. Prosecutors accuse Officer Michael Riley of helping someone hide their involvement in the January 6th insurrection. They allege that Riley told someone to delete posts from Facebook that showed the person in the Capitol during the January 6th attack. And on the news, Chicago's mayor taking the city's police union to court for opposing her vaccine mandate. The fight over getting shots tonight at 7 Eastern. And in California, firefighters have made significant headway in corralling the Alisal wildfire. Containment has jumped to 41 percent in the size of the fire. And the area burned has grown only slightly since yesterday. More than 1,700 firefighters are battling the fire. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Well, the streamers could get the star treatment. Climate change takes cooperation, but at a cost. And forget wellness. Snacking is here to stay. All that and more is coming up in today's future of edition of Rapid Fire. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward. It's a huge week for earnings. Big names reporting, including Netflix, Tesla, Chipotle, IBM, and Intel. Shares of Intel are down about 8% over the past three months, despite the ongoing chip shortage. Investors will be listening closely for any resolution. The major airlines are also out with results. We'll hear from United Airlines, Southwest, American Airlines, and Alaska Air. And it's not just earnings. In a surprise to many, Apple announced an event focused on MacBooks and AirPods on Monday. Housing starts for September are out on Tuesday, while existing home sales data is Thursday. With rates on the rise, will prices start to cool off? The Fed Beige Book brings a check on economic conditions across the country on Wednesday. And WeWork is finally going public. The beleaguered co-working company will debut on the New York Stock Exchange via SPAC on Thursday. The deal values WeWork at around $9 billion, a steep drop from the $47 billion it was worth just two years ago. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back, everyone. Let's catch you up on a few other stories that should be on your radar this Friday. It is time for a special future of Rapid Fire. We're looking at what we'll watch, how we'll get around, what climate change means for business and the economy, and taking a trip down the snack aisle. Joining me now is Danielle Shea. She's Director of Operations at Simpler Trading. Gina Sanchez is CEO of Chantico Global and a CNBC contributor. And Christina Partsinevelis rounds things out. And it's great to have you guys all here. First up is the future of movies and theaters. And Morgan Stanley says everything has changed permanently. They note three key outcomes, robust but smaller theatrical business. Studios will increase output but skew to streaming. And Netflix, Amazon and Apple will become serious Hollywood heavyweights alongside Disney, Warner Brothers and Universal. Analysts are bare on the box office with estimates 10 to 20 percent below pre-pandemic levels all the way through 2024. But they are most bullish on names in the space, reiterating overweights on Disney and Netflix and hiking their price target on Cinemark. Christina? Cinemark. I don't know if that's necessarily um, something that could last into the near future. And I think that they're underestimating what's going to happen with streaming platforms going forward. That could be the death. We know that a lot of uh, everybody is investing in original content. Even just Jeff Bezos back in 2016 said, and I quote, when we win a Golden Globe, it helps us sell more shoes. So that is a priority for them. And maybe what we will see right now is what we saw back in pre-1948 when there was only five movie theaters until the Supreme Court shut that down or I guess broke down the hold that they had. So I'm actually a little concerned going forward with the, the types of 
of original content that we'll, that we'll get and what this means for indie filmmakers, too, because uh, even just on the Amazon platform on February, indie filmmakers can no longer just upload their films. So I think we have to really focus on the original content that could kill moviegoers. And you're right, and how streaming could win and all of that. So, Danielle, tell, walk me through the trades here. Which of these names do you like and agree with Morgan Stanley on, and which might you shy away from? So I absolutely love Disney. I mean, Hulu, their platform is continuing to grow. We're seeing a lot of original content on Hulu that's different from Disney Plus, and it's going to attract a different audience than what we're seeing on Disney Plus. And Disney Plus in and of itself is doing absolutely fantastic since their debut. So I'm absolutely a buyer of Disney. I think that Amazon and their original programming is just going to continue to expand. I'm definitely a buyer there. And I think that everyone needs to watch out for the streaming space because this is something that's only going to expand over time, especially with consumer preferences and the changes of Generation Z and how they like to view media. Before I move along, Danielle, would you be a buyer of Cinemark? No, I would not. You know, <laughs> I, I would not buy any of these movie theater stocks. I mean, you know, you do have AMC. AMC is trying to really reach out to the younger generation. So maybe I could go with that, but not Cinemark. All right. Before I get to Gina, we just have some breaking news uh, coming. It's been a busy day for vaccine news. Not sure if this one's related, but let's get to Meg Terrell. There's something with J&J, Meg. Yeah, Kelly, uh, the FDA advisory committee has just finished voting on whether to recommend a booster for the single dose J&J vaccine at at least two months out from the first dose. Unanimously, 19 to 0, recommending that folks who got a J&J dose, everybody 18 plus, uh, should get a booster at least two months out. A lot of the committee was talking about this like it should have been a two dose vaccine all along, looking at the trial data they have seen. J&J has positioned it as a single dose vaccine, uh, essentially uh, because we're in a pandemic, that will double supply. So if you're looking at this as a two-dose vaccine, you're potentially cutting supply in half. Uh, that said, they did apply for a booster both at two months and at six months, saying essentially for folks at higher risk, maybe two months makes more sense to get more protection quicker uh, and six months for everybody else. But the panel really saying this looks like a two-dose vaccine when you get vaccine efficacy up similar to the two-dose mRNA vaccines, Kelly. They're going to come back in about 15 minutes and start talking about some other stuff, including mixing and matching vaccine brands and technology. Technologies. Not expected to take a vote on that, but this vote really opening up uh, the process to folks being able to go out and getting a second dose after the FDA issues its final decision, the CDC weighs in next week. Kelly? No, we really appreciate it, Meg. Between that news and Moderna news earlier, obviously it's been a very busy afternoon. It's not over yet. We'll let you go. But Gina, I was going to ask you about the future of movies, but let's actually talk future of vaccines here. In the light of this news, uh, what would you do with shares of J&J? Well, J&J has been sort of the redheaded stepchild of the vaccine race. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that this is positive for them. But I think the next news that's coming out is the mixing and matching of vaccines, which actually is going to work against them, uh, meaning that folks who got J&J should get, could get a Pfizer or a Moderna um, uh, mm -hmm. boost. And so that, that could actually change the story there. All right. And we see the shares up a little bit less than 1% now. Moderna shares, uh, for their part, are at session lows right now. They're down 
about 3%. All right, let's move along, talk some future of transportation today with Jeffrey saying it's all about changes for autos. Their survey shows 35% of respondents plan to buy a new car as a result of work-life changes. We've obviously seen a lot of that demand already. Nearly 60% of Americans use a car to commute to work, along with an aging fleet and intensifying EV adoption. Jeffrey sees car sales increasing from here, naming Ford and Tesla as their top picks, as well as auto suppliers Gentex, Little Fuel Fuse, and TE Connectivity. Christina, so some other names when we think about auto strength, at least they are giving a vote of confidence in that strength. There's plenty of people concerned that there's now, I think this is the Kathy Wood argument, so many cars have been purchased uh, that it's going to be tough for some of the traditional car makers to deal with the aftermath of that. The aftermath as well as what about the infrastructure for a lot of these EV firms coming out and selling their cars? We know that GM is pushing forward by 2030 to to have more of their cars just being EV based. And they just announced today, too, that they are going to be spending $750 million on EV infrastructure. So if we're talking about the future of the auto industry, I think that's going to be fascinating to see even just these stations, the retailers that can benefit because you have to sit and wait, what, 10, 15 minutes for your car to charge up. There could be opportunities here. And I know I'm just going to switch for just a second, just because in that note, they did speak about air travel. And I think it's fascinating, too, that with air travel, it seems like uh, many of us are not as concerned when it comes to the environment and that possibly Mm -hmm. going forward, we could see the death of first class as more and more leisure travel picks up. You could start to see people paying more for Comfort Plus, but not first class. Oh, I, I well, Coldplay, I think, is like under pressure because, you know, they've got a new tour and, you know, they're trying to offset the emissions. Anyway, Daniel, let me ask you uh, whether you would be a buyer of the traditional automakers here, of the Teslas of the world, who they think the Model Y is going to be the best selling car in the world uh, in a couple of years time. But the valuation is where it is. What would you do with the space? So I love Tesla. I'm a huge fan, you know, and I think that when we're comparing Tesla against other car manufacturers, we need to remember that Tesla is honestly primarily a technology company. And yes, that while they are a manufacturer of cars and they are in the EV space, they're light years ahead, not only in that space, but also in technology. I'm absolutely a buyer of Tesla of a price target of at least a thousand dollars. Their infrastructure is fantastic. Yes, they have been selling a lot of cars recently, but they're they're very on top of, you know, how many cars they're selling and their infrastructure. They're light years ahead of the other companies. And so I believe that their infrastructure will continue to expand and it's just going to be a cultural change. You know, you stop at a Tesla stop, go get some coffee, check your laptop. And that's what it's going to be like in the future. I thought it was interesting that Elon Musk said he thought their manufacturing would differentiate them in a world where there's tons of EVs and even a lot of autonomous cars that he thinks their manufacturing is that uh, world leading. Uh, Take that for what you will. Let's move along and talk about speaking of some of these climate issues. Bank of America says the push to net zero emissions will actually hurt economic growth prospects in kind of the medium term. They are pushing back on an international energy agency report that says pushing to net zero emissions would create 9 million net new jobs. B of A argues by the time those climate change mitigation efforts are underway, global economies will be near full employment. That's good news, actually. Never mind that the earth will continue to warm and building up green infrastructure in the U.S. will require a doubling of investment, which could push inflation much higher than the IEA's 1 to 3 percent estimate. So beyond the impact on the globe, we're looking at the impact on the economy, Gina. And um, this isn't a a sort of a note about stocks per se, but obviously implied in all of this is the transition from fossil fuels to uh, clean energy names. 
You're right. And that energy transition is going to require a significant amount of income, of, of investment. And that investment is really, I think, what B of A is focused on because investment in, in, incurs an immediate cost and a long-term benefit. And so your cost comes immediately, but your, but your benefit comes later. And so if you're looking at it over a decade-long period, you can say net-net, it's good. However, the immediate and short-term impacts can be negative, but the resulting outcome is significantly more positive. So it's, it's you know, the, the challenge we have is that we are a, a kind of fast consumer and we want everything now. And if benefits don't come now, the economy is, if the people are not, investors are not happy. And that's the challenge that we have to get over. And it's a challenge, Danielle. We you know, have talked about high oil prices, although obviously we just spoke about a technical analyst who's warning that there could be some downside there. Where would you be and kind of the old energy versus new energy names right now? I'm all about the new energy names. I mean, I think that over time, and especially with the shifts that we're seeing in generations, you know, Generation Z is growing up in a world right now where climate change is in focus. Um, I think this is going, I think there is going to be a massive shift towards renewable energy. I like TAN. I know that it's been beaten down the solar ETF. And I also really like in-phase energy. Um, I just got an in-phase system myself. It's working great so far. Um, and this is a stock that I like. I think they're a leader in the space and Tesla again. Yeah, exactly. All right, great. Well, we can't leave it without talking about the future of snacks, guys. So on the Twinkie front, Credit Suisse just initiated coverage on Hostess with an outperform rating and a $22 price target. It's about $4 up from here. They're saying that not everything about health food these days uh, is what you think it is. Taste is still the most important driver of snack choice. The analysts there say the pandemic has advanced a structural trend towards more <laughs> snacking occasions and that Hostess is poised to claim more Market share, Christina, I say this as our beloved producers at home. She says, trying not to eat through the kitchen today. Well, I don't, yeah, and they associate Twinkies with taste. I don't know. Maybe our viewers will disagree with that. But they do point out that Hostess only has 20% of the market, and there's a lot of opportunity to grow. Uh, in terms of snacking, I think that they are correct. You had Levi's even point that out, too, that the weight fluctuations caused them to increase their jean sales because people are just sizing up or sizing down, most likely sizing up. Um, and I, this Jeffrey's analyst also said that this could benefit retailers going forward. And I thought it'd be funny uh, to look up various ETFs if they had like FAT, F-A-T-T, or, and that's not available, nor is, uh, I looked up F-A-T-Y is available, but that's probably very insensitive of me to suggest such a thing. But obviously a financial opportunity, right? Yeah, maybe there's a financial opportunity everywhere. Uh, Gina, would you be uh, on the hostess front, a buyer, a seller, or a holder here as we close things out? You know, Sadly, the argument is a buy argument, and the argument is that if you're going to snack, you don't want to snack on carrots. You want to snack on on food that is just pure sugar, no fiber. It's terrible for you, and so you fall into what the health if you know that what the health effect. If you're going to go, go big. And unfortunately, this is like the worst version of any food out there, and it's just sugar. <laughs> You know, I've gotten some decent, they're like healthy snacks at Costco lately. Everyone should take a look. Danielle uh, Shea, Gina Sanchez, Christina Parts and Evelis, thank you guys all. We really appreciate for this rapid fire today. Costco also has those $10 M&M's jars. Anyway, did you file a tax extension? Because today is your tax day. And if you want to try paying a lower rate, there's an app for that. We'll explain just after this.
Welcome back. Accounting firm KPMG says global deal making could hit a record six trillion dollars by the end of this year as businesses take advantage of low borrowing rates. In their latest survey, they found that nearly half of U.S. CEOs have a high deal making appetite and plan to undertake deals that will have a significant impact to their companies with growth, of course, being a top priority. Here's a hiccup, though. High valuations. Joining me now to discuss is Phil Isom. He is global head of M&A at KPMG. Phil, it's good to see you. And this is not getting the headlines that it normally would. Why do you think that the deal-making boom has been kind of under the radar? Well, Kelly, there's a, there's a lot of competing headlines these days. But uh, uh, certainly what we're seeing at KPMG is, and across the, the globe is that the, the market is extremely strong. M&A activity is, is you know, rebounded from the the pandemic for sure, um, and really hasn't stopped at all. So we said this is being driven by growth. In the past, sometimes it's been driven by cost cutting. You know, we go through cycles where there's not a lot of top line growth and companies have to grow earnings by sort of combining and then cutting on the expense side. Uh, tell me what's different this time. Yeah, well, certainly there's, there's a universe of companies out there that are facing some headwinds, right? We know about uh, supply chain difficulties. Uh, we know about uh, lack of inventory. Uh, you know, those, those issues are certainly impacting uh, a number of companies as well as, right, uh, availability of employees. employees. Uh, and, and so what companies are looking for is other ways to grow. And uh, as a result, you know, I think our KPMG survey uh, has found that, uh, that, you know, the vast majority of, of CEOs see inorganic growth as, as the best path forward. Uh, when when there aren't really great organic opportunities. That's interesting. Also, I wonder how much liquidity is responsible for uh, maybe offering deal makers and uh, you know private equity and other players the incentive to want to get this done. For, for sure, right? I mean, if if you look at uh, uh, low interest rates, attractive financing markets, uh, private equity dry powder at record levels, corporates with you know massive cash on on their balance sheets. There's there's no doubt that. Uh, um, that that is fueling this market as well and, and, and driving uh, the, the record the record values that we're seeing. What kind of industries and sectors are we talking about and how much do we expect this to either continue into next year or kind of, I don't want to say hangover, but uh, is there some kind of reset that we should be expecting? Yeah, well, I think, Kelly, what, what I'd say is KPMG and, and the nature of our services, right, we tend to get hired uh, early on in, in a deal process. And so we tend to have a window of, of uh, you know, visibility as to what's going to happen over, over the next few months, absent right, any major shocks. And, uh, you know, what we're seeing both from the M&A side, our, our deal advisory and strategy uh, colleagues, is, you know, a really high demand for our services. And, uh, you know, I don't expect uh, absent a shock. I don't expect things that, that, that will change as, as we go through into 2020 or 2022, sorry except maybe high valuations. How much does that complicate things? When people are looking around and they're saying, you know, and I hear this even with smaller players looking to combine, you know, these have cascading effects up and down uh, across industries where people just say, you know, these valuations are too high. Sure. And and, and what we're seeing are, are, right, record valuations. Um, You know, the the combination of of the the huge tailwinds that we discussed, uh, coupled with you know, uh, a universe, universe of buyers that far exceeds the number of assets that are out there uh, is really driving driven multiples up to, to levels that uh, that are approaching, you know, levels that haven't been seen. And, uh, you know, that's causing them to really have to think about other ways to extract value, right? The typical synergies 
um, may not be enough given the multiples that they're paying. And so what, uh, what we're seeing at KPMG is just this huge demand, not just for the upfront financial due diligence, um, but also for the post-merger integration work. And, uh, and, and that's something that you know, all these companies are going to face. Uh, paying the multiples that they have to pay today. That's really interesting how that could kind of have an effect uh, on the bottom line so significantly uh, to have to really push on that front. And again, if you're looking for kind of the beneficiaries of this deal-making boom, look no further than Goldman's earnings this morning uh, as evidence of that. Phil, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Have a good Phil day. Isom is global head of M&A at KPMG. Well, it's been turbulent for Boeing lately, but Jim Cramer says he's sticking with the stock. Shares down about a quarter percent today, down 4% this week. He'll tell you why next. And remember, you can catch the show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to the Exchange. Let's talk a little Boeing. The stock, one of the few names that sat out Thursday's big rally on reports that the company is working through a parts defect again on the 787 Dreamliner. Despite the recent slew of negative headlines, Jim Cramer says he is still sticking with the company, saying Boeing is a great way to play the recovery in air travel. The recent rise in oil prices could incentivize airlines to upgrade their fleets and the possibility of China recertifying the 737 MAX sometime between now and the end of the year. He does clarify he's not selling his current position, but he's also not adding shares. If you want more of Jim's insights, you can read all about his trades in his new newsletter, the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up by heading to cnbc.com slash investing club or by pointing your phone's camera at the QR code on the screen. And still ahead, the pandemic is motivating a lot of people to relocate. The wealthy are using that as a reason to pay less in taxes. What it takes to officially move and why the audits could be coming. That's next. Welcome back. Today is tax day for the high-income earners who have filed extensions. But the wealthy flight out of high-tax states like New York and New Jersey during the pandemic, it's complicating things. Robert Frank is here with that story. Robert? Well, Kelly, a record number of taxpayers are using location apps to prove they've been out of a high-tax state for at least half a year. The app called Moneo says its business has more than doubled since last year. They're moving from the high-tax states to the low or no tax states. So the two biggest corridors we've seen in our customer base are New York, tri-state area, down to Florida, and California down to Texas. But New York, California, New Jersey already sending audit notices to those who claim they have moved. The rules state that in order to change your tax residency, you need to meet more than that 183-day rule. You have to establish what's called domicile. That means severing your ties with your old state, usually selling your house or apartment, moving your dogs, your dentist, your kid's school, your office, all to the new state. High earners leaving New York and other states automatically get audited with collections from residency audits topping over $1 billion in New York just over the past decade. Now, those who skip out of town just for a couple of years or a year or so and then return will also get caught because New York has three years just to inform you of an audit so you may not know you're even being audited until 2024. So if you move out of one of those states, you automatically get audited? Sort of the Hotel California School of Taxation. You wow. can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And, you know, especially if you're a high income earner, you automatically get an audit notice. And that's why they've been raising a lot of money from these residency audits. 
I mean, that'd be enough, I think, to dissuade a lot of people from making that choice. Uh, maybe that's the point. Robert, thank you so much. It's really yeah. good to get your uh, analysis today. Robert Frank, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.